1: Calling all men. When was the last time you had a really good cry? A recent survey found that women cry on average five times a month, while men cry on average only once a month. Studies have shown that crying can support your mental, your physical, and your emotional health. I'm Radhi Devlukia, and on my podcast, A Really Good Cry, we embrace the real, the messy, and the beautiful. Listen to A Really Good Cry on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mm
2: Welcome to NFL Films Tales from the Vault. I'm your host, Hall of Fame journalist, Andrea Kramer. On this podcast, we take you into the NFL Films vault. And I'm not kidding. There really is a fireproof vault where over 50,000 cans of film are stored. Among the many items in that vault are over 200 interviews conducted by the late president of NFL Films, my mentor, Steve Sable. And that's where I come in. I'm here to present these interviews, raw, unedited, in their entirety for the first time. So I'll be jumping in here and there to provide context and insight. And today, I'm so excited to be bringing you a true time capsule Steve's 2002 interview with Tom Brady. was 2002. Tom Brady had just won his first Super Bowl and no one, even in their wildest dreams, even with the greatest script ever to be written in Hollywood, could envision this was going to be the first of his seven Super Bowls in a career that would span 22 years. Back then, he hadn't yet married one of the most beautiful, wealthiest models on the face of the earth, Gisele Bündchen. He didn't even have any of his three children. Here's who Tom Brady was. I remember interviewing him right after that first Super Bowl. He came over to our set at ESPN for us to do what was then considered the gold standard for interviews, the Sunday conversation. And fresh faced Tom Brady says to me, wow, I'm going to be the subject of the Sunday conversation? He was pretty excited about that after just winning his first Super Bowl. But like I said, that's who Brady was back then. And this is what was happening at NFL Films in the summer of 2002. The company had just moved into a 200,000-square-foot facility in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, and Steve Sable invited that young, fresh-faced quarterback to do the first interview on the new set in the new building. Look, if you've got a child that's interested in football, this interview is a clinic in leadership, what that really means. And it's incredible, considering that Brady was only 24 years old at this time. So we begin today's interview with Brady talking about baseball. He said if he wasn't playing football, he'd be playing that sport. It's his other favorite. So let's go to the vault for Steve Sable and Tom Brady.
3: We all set? I read something that you said that baseball was rougher than football. Yeah. Well, what do you mean by that?
4: Well, when I was playing baseball uh, growing up. What position were you? I was a catcher. I was a big catcher, yeah. so I was six four. 215 pounds yeah. getting down to a... That's not the body stand. for a catcher. Not at all. Yeah. And that was my problem. I had my knees every time I'd get down in the catcher stance. After, you know, catching seven innings of a game, I'd get up and I'd be limping back to the, to the locker room to change my shoes. And after about four years of high school baseball, I said, I think I've had enough. I'm going to go play football. It'd be a little bit easier on me. Were you a, a quarterbacks
3: at the first position you played?
4: Yeah. I went out for my freshman... Uh, I didn't play football my whole, my whole life until I got to high school. Yeah. And... My, uh, my mom didn't want me to play. She didn't want yeah. me grow, growing up playing football. She said, you'll get hurt, you know. But I, she let me go out for freshman football, and I was a backup. I wasn't even the starting quarterback on my freshman team. We had three teams. We had a freshman team, JV team, and a varsity team in yeah. the lowest of the levels. And I'm the backup on a team that went 0-8, you know. And, and the guy who started before me, he was my best friend, and he ended up quitting football, um, which allowed me to, to be the starting quarterback on the JV team. And uh,
3: yeah, So what happened this year is almost a, a mirror image of what happened the first time that you ever played.
4: Yeah, it happened like that. It happened like that in, in college also. So, what, the guy in front of you got hurt and then you stepped in? To- yeah, there was two guys in front of me. One guy got hurt. I moved up to number two. Um, and then I ended up, my, when, I, when I was starting my fourth and fifth year, um, no one got hurt. I kind of assumed a role, but I was kind of a backup and always yeah. kind of looking to, to get ahead.
3: Now, there's a story that you, when you found out you were going to start at Michigan. Yeah. Well, first of all, why did you go to Michigan anyway? I thought that you could have gone to Cal and you would have been a starter. And when you went to Michigan, there was like five or six all-state quarterbacks ahead of you. Why did you pick that school?
4: Yeah, I, uh. To get an education, right? <laughs> so we did at Michigan? Yeah. <laughs> well, we did that too. But I, uh, I went there. I, there was a lot of schools on the West Coast. I'm from San Francisco. So there was a lot of schools on the West Coast that I was thinking about going to and, and I remember I was, I was sending out tapes to different colleges when I was being recruited, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I had these letters from Michigan, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking to my dad, you know I was a JV, wasn't even a starter on my freshman team, and I'm we're sending out these tapes. I'm like, you know, here's Cal State Northridge, here's uh, you know some of these schools down south, University of San Diego to play football, and I'm saying, Dad, do you think I should send a tape to Michigan? And he's like, Yeah, you know what? Let's go for it. So we sent a tape to Michigan. And they were the, one of the first ones to respond. Hey, we love the tape. We'd love to have you come in, and uh, and I ended up they ended up coming to see me at a couple games, and then sure enough, I took the trip back there. Uh, just kind of want to win. School, yeah, God, it's a great school. Yeah. And I called my parents from the airport on the way back, and I told them, Hey, I'm just going to take a trip to Michigan. I'm not going to go to Michigan. That's way too far. It's way too cold. And I uh, I took the trip, and I, I called them from the airport uh, on the trip home, and I said, Dad, Mom, I think I know where I want to go to school, and it was uh, it was a great decision for me.
3: Now, when you were little, did you go out in the backyard and pass you know, pretend that you were going to play in the NFL someday? Or, or, or were you not really interested in football as a kid?
4: Yeah, that's what I—well, on our street, I mean, you'd be saying, okay, go down, make an out route at the fire hydrant, you know, bounce the guy off the car fender. And, I mean, on my street growing up, we had 50 kids. I mean, there were so many kids. I mean, we didn't have dinner. I mean, it was like a mom would come out and she'd be like, "Guys, we're eating," and well, I'm not hungry, you know. And we're gonna we're gonna stay out and play all night. And we played capture the flag and we played football. We used to draw plays and memorize plays. You know, it's all-time quarterback. You'd have three guys. You know, all-time quarterback. Then you'd have one receiver, and the other guy'd be the DB, and then you'd play well, all you night. Who'd you
3: pretend to be when you were a quarterback? Did you you know? Yeah. Obviously, you must have had players that you watched. Did you say, "Oh, well, I'm, I'm Terry Bradshaw or Roger
4: Staubach or"? i like to be Jerry Rice, Jerry
3: when, I Rice. Was, when I was
4: the receiver. <laughs> oh. So you, the oldest kid was always the quarterback. So I was, I was playing receiver, mm-hmm. and I'd always wanted to be Jerry Rice. He was you know, a San Francisco kid. I mean, he was growing up, and when I was seven years old, when I started to realize the game of football, I mean, he was— Jerry Rice was the man, and he was only getting us when they won all the Super Bowls. Now I want to go back to—you to, uh, well, had three sisters, right? Mm-hmm. So they He was all- the worst athlete in the family. You were? Yeah, those, all what, three of those girls are better athletes than I am. What do they play? Uh, the oldest one was an All-American softball pitcher at Fresno State, and she's, uh, she's as competitive as any yeah. girl I've ever been around. And she's, uh, I mean, she's feisty, and she's the toughest one in the house. And then the other one was a soccer player at St. Mary's College, mm-hmm. heck of a soccer player, and the other one um, was a basketball and softball player also. So. Well, they must have been, that must have been kind of tough. You know so it's a
3: little brother of three sisters that are really did they give you a lot of shit you know when you started out about oh you know you're not you know you, you know you're not measuring up to the rest of the family or, <laughs> or they they
4: inspire you yeah, little of both i was yeah. always I was always a little brother, you know oh, you're maureen's brother, you're julie 's brother and, and it's and when I was a freshman in high school, I wrote a essay about what it 's like to be a baby brother, and I was like people always refer to me as a baby brother, so maybe one day. You know, I want my sisters referred to as that's Tommy's sister, that's Julie's sister and you know, they, they give me that crap now. They're one oh, God, we asked about your brother, how's you know <laughs> now when you were going to the
3: Super Bowl the week before, did any of your sisters call you up and talk to you?
4: Oh yeah, they were they were on the phone all you know, mm-hmm. I mean, the whole season and the Super Bowl, I mean, they were after the Pittsburgh game when, you know, I I twisted Michael, they uh they were always, of course, concerned, mm-hmm. and uh, and we had like, we had big plans. I mean, everyone was coming down to the Super Bowl. I mean, you're not going to miss the Super Bowl at 24 years old. You never know when you're going to get back. So, mm-hmm. they uh, they loved coming down, and we had we had a great one of the one the two days before the game, I went to dinner with my family. It was the first time my family was together for probably seven months. My mom and dad, my three sisters, mm-hmm. um, my sister's fiance, um, my niece. It was. It was probably the best, the best memory of all Super Bowl week having dinner at them at a steakhouse in New Orleans. Do you talk about that? Did anybody ask you about the strategy?
3: About or did everybody purposely try to not talk about the game to make you more nervous?
4: Uh, a little of both. I mean, my my dad always wants to know. Okay, what's the first play of the game? And you got any secret plays in? I mean, are any throwback passes, reverses? Um, he's a. Uh, He's the strategist. Everyone else is kind of like, well, tell me about something else. We see all the football crowd. We can read that. You know, we don't give a shit about that. We want <laughs> Now, What's the best advice your dad's ever given you?
3: I know that's a tough question, but I, he's come up a couple times. I'm wondering if there's some like motto or something that, that he's you know, told you since you've been a little kid to always remember.
4: Yeah. I, when, I was, uh, when I was probably first or second grade, I had a dentist appointment one morning. It was like 8 o'clock in the morning, so I was going to be late for school. So my dad's sitting downstairs eating breakfast, and I walked up, and I've got a note. And I said, Dad, will you write me a note to tell my teacher that I'm gonna be late for school? And he goes, uh, he goes, yeah, no problem. He gives me the piece of paper, just a regular pad of paper, and he writes, you know, dear, you know, miss, you know, whoever, Tom will be late for school. He's got a dentist appointment. So it, it covered about a quarter of the page. So what do I do? I rip three quarters of the sheet off and throw it away. So I've got this little piece of paper. I mean, and he says, what the hell did you just do that for? I said, what do you mean? He goes, when I sign my name to a piece of paper, you know, I'm presenting myself and I'm not presenting, you know, a little quarter piece of paper ripped and torn. I mean, that's me. I want it. You know, this says Tom Brady on it. This is, I'm presenting, you know, this sheet of paper. And it was just something like, if you're going to present something, you know, it's got to be exactly how you'd want it to be. You know, it it's not ripped. It's not torn. It's not, you know, discolored. There's no spelling errors. I mean, there's nothing. It's uh, it's something that I've always taken with me. It says, hey, when I, when I sign my name to something, when I, you know, say this is Tom Brady, then I want it to be exactly how I'd want it to be presented.
2: Thomas Edward Patrick Brady Jr. And that Jr. is pretty important because it signifies the relationship he has with his father, Tom Brady Sr. For all the talk about Brady's family, and we've heard about his sisters, don't rule out the importance of his mom. You know how many post-game interviews I've done with Brady and he ends them all with, hi, mom, hi, mom, hi, mom. Well, there's a lot of those in the archives as well. And of course, if you ask anyone in the family, they'll tell you that Brady gets his competitive juices from his mother, Galen. But his relationship with his father is so strong that bond's so unbreakable that when Tom went across the country to Michigan, as opposed to up the road to Cal, Tom Brady Sr. told me, that he had to see a therapist to work out his issues with separation anxiety from his best friend, his son. So upholding the Brady name is hugely important to Tom, which is why this story of how he almost got arrested at Notre Dame is so meaningful. You mean you never heard the one about Tom Brady getting locked in Notre Dame Stadium?
3: Um, I want you to tell a story about when you, re- when you realized you were going to start at Michigan. You looked on the schedule and you saw that you were going to play Notre Dame,
4: yeah. then what did you do? Well, it was probably right around when Rudy came out. So I just touched down Jesus and, yeah. you know, I mean, this, this Notre Dame, this kind of aura of Notre Dame. And I'm figuring, I'd never been to the stadium. Mm-hmm. There was a wedding in Chicago mm-hmm. that I was a part of. So on the way back from Chicago to Ann Arbor, I was like, you know, I drive by and see signs for South Bend. It's about a month before we're playing them. And I'm thinking, okay, yeah, I'm going to just stop in. I'd love to see what it's like. So when I go down there and run on the field for the first time, it's not the first time I'm getting used to, getting used to the environment. So I pull up. It's a Sunday afternoon. You know, it's about, probably about five or six o'clock. And uh, I mean, I'd never been there, but there's these huge um, uh, steel gates right. to get in. And I go up to the first one, and it's locked. And I'm thinking, how the hell am I going to get in the stadium? Well, what if I, if I just walk around? Maybe someone left a gate open. So I walk around. Sure enough, halfway around, there's a gate that's unlocked. Um, you know, there's a lock hanging off, but it's not fastening the gate together. So I walk in, and I lock the gate to itself, thinking that, well, if someone walked by from the outside and saw it was unlocked, they might lock it and lock mm-hmm. me in. Well, I walk around you know, the stadium. I go You're all by yourself. All by myself. No one's in the stadium. You know, I don't see anyone, I don't hear anything. All I see is a bunch of no trespassing signs, mm-hmm. you know. So I'm kind of I'm kind of creeping my way through the yeah. stadium and I'm standing on the field, kind of walking around the outside. What were you thinking when you were one? That, that I'm going to play here in a month or? Yeah, yeah. I just kind of took it all in. You know, I walked up in the top of the stands and kind of walked down, stood on our sidelines, stood in the middle of the field real quick. I mean, kind of like ran across. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was just, you know, you go up and look at the touchdown Jesus from the stadium. and It, it was cool. Yeah, And... So I walked, I'm walking back out to, to the gate that I walked in, and I guess someone had come into the stadium because they had unlocked the gate and then fastened the, the two sides of the gate together. So I'm thinking, oh, my, I'm locked in the friggin' stadium. <laughs> it's 6 o'clock at night. My car's sitting out there in some illegally parked zone. And there's, I'm thinking, I'm playing here in a month. I'm going to be on Sports Center, you know, <laughs> breaking into the stadium. So I, I, I'm trying to get out, and then I go up to one end of the stadium. I think it was a... To the south, the south end zone, and I uh, there's a big uh, there's a ramp, you know, kind of a handicap ramp that, that goes up the side of the stadium, and about 20 feet up there's kind of a you know it's like a open window that you can jump down onto the grass, and it was you know when I got up there and I kind of looked down because I was going to jump over the top, I'm thinking I'm going to break my ankle, you know I don't know what's worse being <laughs> in jail or breaking my ankle jumping out of the stadium, so I didn't know what to do, didn't have a phone on me, so I I get into this uh, I get into this, uh, this gardening, uh, this uh, maintenance tent, yeah. and I found a sledgehammer. So I take the sledgehammer, go outside, and there's an there's a extension ladder bolted onto the wall. And I just start beating the hell out of this extension <laughs> ladder to knock it off the wall. So I knocked the thing off the wall after about 10, I mean, I, I must have hit it 10 times. And this ladder was so busted up. I took it, carried it, you know, halfway around the stadium, threw it over the top where I was going to jump. Climbed down, got in that car and drove out of South Bend faster than I've ever driven in my life. Did you tell anybody that story when you got back to Michigan? No, yeah. I didn't want to tell my coach. I didn't want to tell anyone. I didn't want anyone to know. I mean, and people were, when I'm climbing down the ladder. There were people that were visiting, and and I turned around. They got this camcorder, <laughs> me <coming> down, <laughs> following me down. Yeah, I'm we going, should look for that footage. I know we it might be somewhere. That, you know. Someone's no. probably got it.
2: If anyone actually does have this footage, can you please contact NFL Films? I mean, this may not be the sports version of the Sapruder film, but this is Tom Brady we're talking about. And when we come back, we'll hear about his infamous NFL scouting report and Steve and Tom get into great detail about the tuck rule game. Stay tuned.
0: You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, irish spring body wash and bar soap fresh green irish shop now at a store near you
1: calling all men when was the last time you had a really good cry a recent survey found that women cry on average five times a month while men cry on average only once a month studies have shown that crying can support your mental your physical and your emotional health I'm Radhi Devlukia, and on my podcast, A Really Good Cry, we push against typical societal norms. We embrace the real, the messy, and the beautiful. Providing a space for raw, unfiltered conversations that celebrate vulnerability and allow you to tune in to share, connect, and find comfort together.
2: Our tears
3: come as a way to let us release what we can't hold anymore. I trust that no one's
1: ever gonna find out those deepest, darkest secrets. Yeah. It's been a hard day. She walks out, and this is what she looks like.
2: Oh my gosh, give her an Oscar! <laughs>
1: Listen to A Really Good Cry with me, Radhi Devlukia, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome back to NFL Films Tales from the Vault. It seems almost unfathomable that Tom Brady was drafted in the sixth round. But make no mistake, 199 where he was picked, that number's etched in his mind and his legacy. His draft status and the kind of embarrassing portrayal of Brady in draft annals belies what I think is perhaps his greatest attribute, his mental fortitude. That's what's enabled him to never accept the judgment of others or to set limits on himself. So again, as you listen to young Tom Brady, remember this is 20 years ago with this mindset. Makes it pretty clear why he's gone on to become the greatest Super Bowl winner of all time.
3: I want to read you something. This is the draft report on you. And we, we condense this a little bit. And basically it goes, you know, Tom Brady, poor build. That might be accurate. <laughs>
2: I would probably agree.
3: <laughs> Skinny, lacks great physical stature and strength and gets knocked down easily.
4: Well, says the same thing. Yeah. as a runt. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't think I was, well, that kind of gets me fired up because yeah. I'm thinking, you know, what the hell do these people know? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, that sounds like uh, Joe Montana right there. I mean. Uh-huh. Well, when you what I'm going to get at is when you got
3: to the NFL, I mean, what were you thinking that, you know, I'm here, maybe I'll come up for a cup of coffee, I can play a couple of years, maybe I can be a starter, maybe I can, you know, you know make a career out of this. Or did you have you know bigger dreams and say, geez, you know, I can, I think I can play.
4: I, I had huge dreams, and I and I still got bigger dreams, and I think that, you know, my whole life people tell you, hey, you know, you can't do this. You're too, you know, you're too slow. You don't throw hard, on you know, you're not. Well, they didn't even you say
3: know. that that we can add. That too <laughs> you slow. Add you don't have hair. a good arm. I'm sure.
4: Yeah. I'm sure if you if you if you didn't have the condensed version, that's part of what you'd read, but. My whole, You know, when I, was a, when I was a freshman in high school, when I wasn't starting, my coach said, oh, you know, you've got to work on your speed. You know, you're just not fast enough. So sure enough, that's what I did. And, you know, when I got to college, same thing. You know, you've got to be better at this. You can't do this. And when people tell you, hey, you can't do this, you can't do this, and you keep overcoming that, I mean, you just you build this, this, this confidence in yourself and this belief in yourself that even when nobody else believes in you, that I'm still going to do it. Because I don't give a shit what you say, but I know what I can do, and I've done it, and I'm going to prove it to you. And then if you don't believe, I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to keep doing it until you believe. And if you don't believe, that's your, that's your problem. Because someday I'm going to get it done. And I, and I want your help. I don't ask for it. I don't want your sympathy. And I'm going you know, to keep overcoming things.
3: What did the Patriots tell you when you started? Did they go through the same thing? Hey, Tom, you've got to work on this, you got to work on that. Or, or were they more
4: encouraging? Uh, they, were, they were always very encouraging. We had yeah. a quarterback coach who came to – it was a guy who worked me out at Michigan. He passed away last year, right. Dick Rabine. Mm-hmm. And he came to my school and he was always on my side. From the day I got there, we had meetings um, before, the, before the, the, the veteran meetings, it was rookie meetings, and that was me and him. And all summer long we worked on stuff. And over the course of last year, watching from, watching from Drew and John Fries was a, a great tour, Michael Bishop was on there. I mean, these guys are guys that I, I watch. I kind of say, okay, well, what do they do well? And I try to take that from them. And, um, how can I, how can I, you know, find a niche? What what do I do well, and how could I contribute? What do you
3: think you do well? What's your what's your best asset as a quarterback?
4: Oh man, those are the hardest questions to answer. Yeah. I don't how to answer well, that.
3: you know, we can pass on it and come back to it. I mean, if there's something that uh, well, I you know, think I do well, or maybe what's what do you think? All the obviously all the things that have been written about you this year. What do you think? is maybe your overlooked, most overlooked skill that, that people say, well, Tom Brady did this and this and this, but you're saying, you know, nobody ever mentioned that I can do this. Like, you know, mm-hmm. follow through, maybe something's a little like following through in your fakes or, uh, yeah. you know, picking out a third receiver.
4: I think, I think one thing that, and the reason why I think I'm, you know, I'm successful is I think I love playing football. I just, and because of that, I, everything is sacrificed for playing. I mean I love I could throw seven on seven for twelve hours a day. I and mean, it's just that's that's the most fun I have, you know, throughout, you know, my life is going out on the football field and playing catch. And because of that, I mean people see that and people say, Hey man, Tom's having a hell of a time. Let's just let's just hop on his back and we'll go with it. And I'm gonna have a hell of a time too doing it. You know, and we have fun out there at practice. I mean, we're cracking jokes and we're, you know, making fun of our coaches and and I think when you have a group of guys that, you know, can kind of come together and say, you know, I mean, it, sound, it sounds phony, but I man, we're, no, having, I don't think it we're sounds having a hell funny. of a time. Is there one specific play time that you can look back
3: last year through the whole season and think, man, I know I can do this now? And was there one game or play that, that comes back to your mind and, or that you could say, when that happened, You'd say, you know, I think I, can, I think I can take this team to the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm.
4: You know, it was probably the, probably the most disappointing game of the year. When it, it was probably an interception. You know, mm-hmm. there was a play in Denver Broncos where... Um, well, you had like four interceptions uh, four, well, in the last quarter, the I fourth think. Fourth quarter. Right? That's a hell of a quarter, isn't it? Yeah. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> four <laughs> picks. There was one where I was, um, it was the second one and I was throwing to Troy Brown, and we had an option route for Troy. And I didn't read Troy the way I should have read him. You know, Troy's got an option to break in or break out, depending on where the defender is. what well, was zone coverage. Troy started to the outside, and he saw the defender sitting outside, so he turned back in. Well, you know, I'm figuring, you know, I was a little flustered. As soon as he broke the outside, I threw it. And you know, I threw it to Darnell Walker, hit him right between the 2 and the 7, and he took it 25 yards to end the game, you know. And from that point on, I said, "I'm never going to let that happen again, you know, and I'm never going to take my team out of the game, I'm never going to um, make a mistake like that and and never have a miscommunication with receiver. I mean all the things that come into a play like that that you know we got to go forward from there, and i got to make sure that never happens again and that was really when we started take off and that was a, that was four picks we were we were through I think that took us to I think we were 2-3 and three at the time or something like that. But uh, our season really turned from that point on, I thought. You
3: know, I remember what you're saying about relating to your teammates. I did an interview a long time ago with Bobby Lane, and he said that the quarterback has got to be different than everybody else. He says football, it's like a cast system. You have the whole team here, and the quarterback is up here. He's separate. He doesn't socialize. He's, he's got to be different. You think that's, that's, that's still true, or do you believe in that?
4: Um, in a sense, yes, but in a sense, no. I mean, I think you gotta be one of the boys, because you are. Mm-hmm. But in another sense, there's more expectation and there's more responsibility. So, you know, when all the guys are going out to drink beers, you know, you might have to slip a few waters in there, you know? <laughs> I mean, you gotta, you're, you're one of the guys and you enjoy hanging out with them, but you gotta be up at seven. You know, you've got to study film late. You know, you've got, to, you've got to be the guy that's, you know, fills in the holes for everyone else. So when everyone else is, is, you know, goofing around or getting a little complacent, you've got to be the one that can bring everyone back up. You know, you've got to be the one that is kind of the checks and balances of the whole team. And, but you can't ever seem like, you know, you're another coach because you're not. You know, you're a player and the coach communicates you. But it's a fine line. It's a very fine line because... You know, the quarterback gets a lot of the, you know, when, when people want to talk, they want to talk to the quarterback, you know, and the quarterback's always held to a certain level, but you don't ever want your guys feeling like they can't talk to you or they put you on that pedestal because you want to be, you want to feel like, I'm just, I'm just like you guys, you know, I'm slugging it out like you, and that's how I feel. I've read once that um, in order to succeed
3: in something, you have to have a clear knowledge of your own weakness weaknesses obviously you had an incredibly successful season what was what do you think is your weakness the thing that you were aware of during the course
4: of this year wow uh and what a lot of times you pride yourself on you know what what you do do well I think sometimes going back to that you think well at least I think you know I can think my way through this game you know I'm a smart guy I can process the information I could I know the calls I know the audibles I know the defenses but one of the weaknesses is sometimes you get too smart for yourself. You know, you start to over-anticipate things. Mm-hmm. You don't play. You think that, okay, I have this play versus, you know, I see a defense. Okay, it's a cover two defense. I know exactly my read. Well, you know, what if the free safety doesn't play cover two quite like I expect them to? And I've already thrown the ball to a guy who should be open if he played it the right way, but, you know, he's guessing. So he picks the ball. And you can overthink things. You can... You can anticipate things, but you can over-anticipate. And you could, you could talk your way out of plays, you know, that you know, you're know you going up to the line of scrimmage sometimes, and you're like, oh, shit, you know, I, I hate this play. I, don't like, I didn't like it in practice. I didn't like it on the game plan. And now he's calling it, you know? And then you get out there, and sure enough, it's a bad play, you know, just because you've talked yourself into it, so. We're surrounded by all this memorabilia. Mm-hmm. What did you save from last season? Uh, I, I got a, I got a few things. I have my Super Bowl jersey, of course. Okay. Um, Are you wearing your ring? We get them soon. Oh, you don't Monday, have we don't have got them yet. Okay. You know, next Sunday. Yeah. But uh, the one thing that I kept was the the touchdown ball from the Raider game, then when I ran it in, you know. Because mm-hmm. everyone said you can't run, you know, it's too slow, can't run, you know. And that was that was like one of the biggest plays uh, of my career, and I spiked that. I tried to spike that ball so hard, <laughs> you know. I. I uh, and as soon how did as I you get? It, how did you
3: get the ball? Did you get the ref to give it to you, or how do you know it's the real ball?
4: As soon as I spiked it, Damian Woody picked it up, my center, oh, okay. and he came over and he gave it to me. He goes, "I mm-hmm. think you want this." And uh, I kind of took it off the sideline. And I grabbed it, and I wasn't letting go of that ball. I put it in a safe place. I gave it to Don I said, Don't you lose this? I said, "I want this after the game." Where is it now? Um, it's at my house. I wrote on it, you know, Patriots. You know, Patriots First Oakland. First rushing touchdown. Pretty cool. Yeah.
3: Now, let's go back to that game. When you run out onto the field and you see that, that weather, what was the first thing that you thought of? Great, you know, uh, you know, I'm from Michigan, I'm used to playing in this, or yeah. oh boy, this is, gonna be, this is gonna be hell to play in something
4: like this. Yeah, I ran out, probably too early. I always like to go out early and get loose. I walked and I said, holy shit, why is the field not covered? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought, you know? I mean, quarterbacks are always thinking, come yeah. my the footing, I mean, the ball's gonna be wet. Yeah. And uh, I ran out, and I, was, I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was the first time I'd played in snow like that before. Really? And you, and you played at Michigan, and you never had a snowstorm like that? Never a snowstorm like yeah. that. Practice, that. Practice, we had yeah. done in practice a little bit, uh, but never, never like that. I don't think a lot of people have played in weather like that.
3: How does that affect the game, that kind of snow, playing in that weather? What did you have to change?
4: Yeah, they were big, they were, the, the snowflakes were, they were big, soft, you know, white snowflake. They weren't heavy slush. You know, so it wasn't like a, just a slush bowl out there. It was, the snow was pretty dry. So it was, I'm sure playing in that snow was probably better than playing in, in, the, ra- in the rain. Mm-hmm. The, the hard part, I think, was for the receivers because the field was like cement on the outside. And from the numbers out, it was, it was ice, and the field was frozen solid. So they couldn't get in and out of cuts, and the only thing that was keeping them from cutting was the snow. So guys would have their cleats, you know, their half-inch spikes on. And there would be a half inch of snow to two or three inches of snow that was packed down by the end of the game. But nobody could make any cuts. The DBs would backpedal, and you'd throw the ball to your receiver, and he couldn't even break to, to break up the ball. So in a lot of ways, I think that was an advantage for the quarterback.
3: We have a shot of you and the, the Bob Kraft before the game, and there's like some sort of a conversation. Do you remember what, what, what he said to you or what you said to him?
4: Yeah, I remember that one. I uh, think I promised him we'd win the game. I think I... He'd come up to me a couple weeks before, and uh, going in earlier that week, I said to him, uh, I said, we're going to get this one. You know, we're winning this ball game. And he said, all right. So I saw him before the game, and he looked at me. He said, you remember what you told me, right? And I said something like, yeah. I said, I I promise you we're going to win this one. So said, we're going to get this one for you.
3: Now, I read something about the strategy of that game, and a lot of credit was given to Coach Belichick, and and justifiably so. But and I don't know whether this is true, but they said that the, this particular article said that the whole first, you know, three quarters is that it was just run the ball, run the ball, run the ball. And it wasn't until that you were really in a desperate situation that the coach said, all right, you know, Tom, throw the damn thing and let's see if we can we can win it this way.
4: Yeah, we were down 10 in the fourth quarter and there was probably 12 minutes left. And uh, Charlie Weiss walked over to me and Charlie said, uh, he said, we're going no huddle. He says, we got to go win this game. And uh, And Coach Belichick came over He said, okay, now we're we're either gonna go no huddle or we're just gonna kind of pick up our tempo. And Charlie was, I think Charlie was pretty adamant about Mm -hmm. going no huddle. So they talked and he said, all right, Coach Belichick, we gotta go. We gotta go win this thing. And we marched down, scored, and we finished off on that run. And they punted it back to us. And uh, we punted back to them. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like, you know, we scored twice in a row. We actually had a series in there where we didn't score, which allowed our defense. But did
3: you change the strategy? Was the beginning of the game,
4: the first half, we're going to run the ball because of the weather? Or, 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 is, or is that not true? I think we thought we could run the ball well against mm-hmm. them. I mean, I thought going into the game that um, our, our, our game plan was to, to run it. Because they, they were very good in the secondary. I mean, Charles Woodson, he's going to be a Hall of Famer. Um, they had Eric Allen on the other side. They really had some, some good talent out there, some great talent. So we thought one of the things that we could exploit was their, was their D-line, their linebackers, who are good players, but we thought we'd have a better chance of running the ball. And then, especially when you go out and you see the snow, mm-hmm. you go, know, oh, shit, you know, <laughs> we got to run it now. Mm-hmm. So it. it but then at up, the end, you, changed, you ch- changed totally and said,
3: all right, to win it, we're going to have to throw it.
4: Yeah. yeah, and we threw it probably 30 mm-hmm. times in the second
3: half. What, now let's get back to the, to the, to the play, you know, the, the
4: fumble. What was your first reaction? Thankfully pass. <laughs> yeah, really you thought it was an incomplete pass you know when, when, when he initially hit me um, kind of reached out to try to trip uh, Greg Beekert he was yeah. the one going after and I saw him so I tried to kick my leg up you can't do a lot when you're laying on the ground and someone's laying on top of you mm-hmm. but uh, I got hit I was trying to throw it to the, to the, to the running back and what happened was the defensive end peeled, on the, peeled off he was a rusher and once he saw the running back kind of released out of the backfield I guess it was his job to to drop. It was a it was a zone blitz is what it was. So they were bringing their their two strong side linebackers. One was Charles Woodson and one was I think mm-hmm. Beekert. They were coming, which I should have thrown to the right side to a slant that was wide open. Mm-hmm. why well, I said I was going to throw a weak side. This is one of those things that I can overthink things. And I'm gonna to throw to J.R. Redmond coming out of the backfield. But the defensive end peeled on him which made me hold the ball. So I was going to recock and throw it to him. And just as I was starting to it was coming down, I was you see pump taking I think I was recocking ball's going right back up to throw it and that's when he hit me mm-hmm. but
3: they didn't call that illegal hit to the head that he gave me either <laughs> where were you when Vinatieri kicked the field goal uh the one that tied it the, the one that we've said it's the greatest
4: field goal in NFL history yeah no question I mean you couldn't even see if you you know from that from the from the from the from the, from the tight shot on the other end zone you couldn't even see the ball go through the uprights I mean, it was, that's how bad it was but I was standing probably soon as he ran out on the field, I think I, I walked right over and I turned around as fast as I could, because I know the clock was running down, too. So he uh, did you say anything to him when he was coming on the field? Uh, I don't remember. Yeah. I remember right after I ran out there and I, gave him, I, was, I was so excited, and I figured, "Shit, we got a shot now." Yeah. That was and that was unbelievable.:
2: It's called the tucker Rule game because of that play, but it overshadows what it really came down to: the kicks because this game solidified Adam Vinatieri as the greatest bad-weather kicker in NFL history. So while Vinatieri may get overshadowed, the game during that Super Bowl run that often gets overlooked is the AFC Championship game that took place the following week in Pittsburgh. The Steelers were nine-point favorites, and late in the first half, Drew Bledsoe replaced an injured Tom Brady. He'd hurt his ankle and led the Patriots to victory. The same Drew Bledsoe who had signed a 10-year, $103 million contract the previous offseason, only to be replaced by Brady in Week 2 after Bledsoe suffered what could have been a fatal injury. The AFC Championship game was Bledsoe's greatest contribution actually getting the Patriots to the Super Bowl. But that set up Bill Belichick's decision, who to start in the Super Bowl. Look, look, I covered the team that week, and it was agonizing. Does he start Brady, the second-year wunderkind? or Bledsoe, the nine-year veteran. That decision to go with Brady, to go with Belichick's gut, may have been the most impactful decision in the history of the Patriots franchise. So let's rejoin Steve and Tom and learn what happened pregame prior to Super Bowl 36.
3: Now I want to get to the uh, the Super Bowl. I, I read a story that said that in the locker room, before the Super Bowl, that you fell asleep yeah I was uh does that relax you before the game do you do that a lot yeah I'd never done that and but before the Super Bowl the biggest game of your
4: life you're sleeping in the locker room yeah there was there was such a long break between our warm-up and the start of the game because they that pregame damn pregame show runs for an hour you know so normally we're out there and we go in and five minutes later we're back on the field well coach had said hey guys we're gonna have hour and ten hour and fifteen minutes well the night before, of course, you're a little restless. So, you know, anytime you get to the game, we had warmed up, and then of course you're, you know, you go sit down. and The next thing I know, I'm sitting on the floor. The next thing I, know, I take my pads off, you know, and I laid them back right in front of my locker. I just kind of put my head down, and I, mean, I knew I had a lot of time. So I think it, at the at that point, I, there's there's not really any nerves for me because there's nothing more I can do. You're pre- I was prepared. I was ready, I was confident, you know? I was at peace, I was just, I had such a peace of mind, I said, hey, you know, just put my head back, and I think I woke up about a half hour later, and sure enough, I looked next to me, and Bledsoe was sleeping, you know? (laughs) And I think some of the guys are kind of kicking back, a lot of guys listen to headphones, but it was just one of those moments that, you know, just was just relaxed. A lot of people have talked about the
3: relationship that you had with Bledsoe, that's really an interesting, uh, whole interesting story you think you could have if the roles were reversed that, that you could have done this the, the, handled it the way he did
4: I mean, That's as tough a situation as is um as there could be for a quarterback because when you're a quarterback you, you know you 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 have this great confidence about you and you never want to feel like you know that there's someone else out there and if I was in that situation I don't know how I could have dealt with it and um, it was. Just, it's never easy. I mean, it's a competitive situation. There's one guy that plays. You know, it's not like running back or receiver. There's one quarterback, and you know, when you're the quarterback, you always feel like um, I've had a big part to do with this game. When you're the backup quarterback, you don't even feel like you're on the team. You feel like you're a fan. You know, like God, I didn't do anything to help our team win. So, I mean, he's been a he's been a great player, you know, for a long time, and. Uh, he was, he was a big reason of, of our success, that his, he, he put you know, the team low ahead of his own goals. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of our, that was our team in, in a nutshell. I and mean, that was really us, was that we weren't gonna let any of our own agendas get in the way of what our team was trying to accomplish. And because of that, it was the ultimate payoff that when you do win, everyone gets the credit. You know, there's enough credit to go around for everyone. And a lot of people don't realize that, that mm-hmm. when you're great, you know, when your team's great, you know. The water boys get credit and the equipment and the trainers and everyone. And it's great. And everyone can can en- share and en- enjoy that. But the individual stuff, you know, there's yeah. nothing that you can give me that's going to be worth as much okay. as that Super Bowl ring. I think we had a shot of you in the in the tunnel before the Super Bowl. And you are and
3: you're you and Bledsoe, and you're banging each other, and you're saying you're going to get this. I'm going to win this for you. I'm going to win
4: this for you. Do you remember what you said? Is that? Um, before, it sounded like something like that. We were going out beforehand. And... Uh, I'll always go up. I, I was going up to him. I made a habit of going up to him and you know, as quarterbacks, we're you know, we're not the big tough guys, you know. We try to pretend like we're gonna be. So I always grabbed him. I tried to sneak up on him and take my helmet and just just give him a, give him a shot as hard as I can. Well, before the game, pregame warm ups, i kinda of turned around and here he came, smack, and he got me. I said, I'm gonna get you back for that one. Mm-hmm. So I saw him in the I saw him in the tunnel for the game and I turned around and I Game of big head, dove and kind of heavy. And it just kind of knocks, you know, you just get hit. You know, it just knocks some of the, the energy out of you. And uh, so I told him, I'm going to get you back. You know, I'm going to get you back. And then, of course, Willie McGinnis grabs me. And he, Willie's, you know, 6'6", <laughs> six, six, 260. He just, 290, puts me up against the thing, and he just laughs at me. And I'm just kind of like a little kid going, I can't move. <laughs> How are ways that, that, that
3: Drew helped you during the season? I mean, what were the things that he did that, that any specific things that he
4: did to help you? Um... He was just, he's just a, he's a, just kind of a safety blanket. You know, he's just a guy that he's very comforting. There's, coaches can sit there and go, man, you should have thrown to this guy. And, you know, you've got to read the, you know, you've got to read the front. And then, hey, you got to check the middle linebacker on the snap. Then read the rotation, of the safeties. And then if you see this, you know, if you see the Sam, you know, get outside the tight end, you know, you've got you to work backside to the X, which, I mean, you're going, wait, I mean, how many eyes you think I got? I mean, I can see a few things. And Drew would come over and say, man, just look at this, you know, and throw it here. And, you know, if they take that away, throw here. I mean, you don't, don't get crazy with this. And, you know, coaches will go, well, you know, you should have thrown that ball. And, and Drew's kind of looking at me like, what the hell is he looking at? You know, he, there's no way you're going to complete that ball. Um, so he's a guy that when he's got confidence in you, you know, and he's been there for eight years, three Pro Bowls, been to Super Bowls, I mean, there's, you get confidence that, okay, I am doing the right thing. And that, you know, when someone else is beating you down and he comes in, you feel like there's trust in him to know that if he tells you something, it's the truth. But that's that sort of a unique situation because there's not many things I
3: can think of going back through the NFL where you have a, someone like you comes in and the old, the incumbent quarterback seems to be that congenial and helpful and, and um, you know, most of the time that he maybe they wouldn't have talked to you or they wouldn't have helped you. So, did you realize how unusual that, that situation was, and that then that you actually you actually replaced him, and yet he still is 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 there to help you?
4: Yeah, I think so. I mean, like I said, it, it was never um, it's never easy. I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't an easy situation. It for you, for either of us. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you know, I would never want to feel like you know I'm stepping on anyone's toe. Mm-hmm. I don't want to feel like I'm pushing someone aside because I wasn't. You know, it was a – when I took over, him you know, he was hurt. He was in a hospital, you know, and I saw him in the hospital. And he's, you know, laying there and he can't talk and he's got his kids jumping on him and he's lost liters of blood. I mean, he's just um, – at that point, you fill in and you try to play like he would play, you know, and you try to keep getting better. And then when he finally came back and was ready to play, it wasn't like it was open competition or anything. It was um, – When he was finally ready to play, we were on a roll. And I I think that made the coach's decision easier. He said, hey, man, we're we're winning games. You know, let's just keep rolling with it. And we didn't lose after that. So it was how can you make a change? And he's a great player, and and he's always going to be a great player, and he has been, and he's proved it. And I know that, he knows that. And there was never going to be – we were never going to let – The competitiveness between each other you know take away from like I said what we were trying to do it's it was very um, it was a lot of it was a lot of strain on both of us you know that you always have to say the right thing and feel the right way and act the right way but inside you know what's going on I mean you're a competitor I want to play I want to play bad. I don't want to play I don't want to come out and of course I don't think that there's anyone else that should be playing but me And on the other side he's saying the same thing that you know I'm the best player I want to lead this team. And that's, that's how you should feel. And if you don't feel that way, you'll never be good. You'll never be good at anything, you know, because you always feel that oh, I'm, just, you know, I'm just taking up space.
2: Bledsoe often gets lost in the Brady greatest ever narrative, but after New England won the Super Bowl, the way the former first rounder handled his demotion and ultimately his trade to the Bills just two months after the championship is commendable. Sure, Bledsoe had to grapple with the fickle fate of football history, but he never let resentment affect his relationship with Brady or with the Patriots franchise, which inducted him into their Hall of Fame in 2011. And when we come back, we'll hear about the final drive in the Super Bowl and the decision not to take a knee. And in the ultimate illustration of why this interview is a great time capsule, Steve asks Tom maybe the most ironic question in this entire interview, if Brady's worried about peaking too early in his career. Stay tuned.
0: irish spring body wash and bar soap fresh green irish shop now at a store near you
1: calling all men when was the last time you had a really good cry a recent survey found that women cry on average five times a month while men cry on average only once a month studies have shown that crying can support your mental your physical and your emotional health I'm Radhi Devlukia, and on my podcast, A Really Good Cry, we push against typical societal norms. We embrace the real, the messy and the beautiful. Providing a space for raw, unfiltered conversations that celebrate vulnerability and allow you to tune in to share, connect, and find comfort together.
3: Our tears come as a way to let us release what
1: we can't hold anymore. And I trust that no one's ever gonna find out those deepest, darkest secrets. Yep. It's been a hard day. She walks out, and this is what she looks like.
2: Oh my gosh, give her an Oscar! <laughs>
1: Listen to A Really Good Cry with me, Radhi Devlukia, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you
2: get your podcasts. Welcome back to Tales from the Vault. Let me set the scene for you here in Brady and Belichick's first Super Bowl together. The Patriots were trying to ground the high-flying Rams. Remember, they had Kurt Warner in The Greatest Show on Turf. The game was tied with a minute 21 to go. Now, keep in mind that at this point in his career, Brady was basically a game manager. There was conservative play calling by then offensive coordinator Charlie Weiss, and the emphasis was just don't make any mistakes. That's why the legendary John Madden suggested on the broadcast that the Patriots take a knee and play for overtime. And
3: now with no timeouts, I think that the the Patriots, with this field position, you have to just run the clock out. You have to play for overtime now. I don't think you want to force anything here. We don't want to do anything stupid because you have no timeouts and you're backed up.
2: Little did we all know what we were about to witness and set the stage for the next 20 years.
3: I want to move ahead to the end of the, the Super Bowl, the last drive with a minute and 21 to go. Could you take me, take me through that? Because that again, that's a, a classic sequence of plays in NFL history. Yeah, that was, uh... They had just scored first. First of all, when you were in the, Tom, when you were in the, do you realize what was at stake? I mean, the, the, the magnitude of the event. And uh, there, there's a famous story with Joe Montana that against the Super Bowl against the Bengals, where he's leading the team in the last drive, and all of a sudden he sees John Candy and the you know, the comedian. Yeah. And he's in the middle of calling the play, and he says, Hey, you know, look over there, that's John Candy. And everybody <laughs> looks over, and, let, and then he continues to call the play. Was there anything like that? That, that you had any, any abstract kind of moment like that that you might have had in that final drive?
4: Yeah, you had, I had no idea the magnitude. No idea. I mean, just, it's, it feels like another two-minute drill. And until that falling through the uprights, it was just, hey, here's a little, you know, flip to JR, you know, throw another swing pass, bam, hit Troy, Adam runs on and kicks the game winner. It was almost like, okay, what's next? And then it's, it's, it all set in that, holy shit, you know, we're Super Bowl champs, you know, and they, the confetti's coming down. I mean, that was, uh, it was incredible. It was the start of the drive. We were kind of deciding whether we wanted to kneel on it or, or take a shot and go win it. Charlie came over, our offense coordinator, and he said, uh, he said, well, we're going to go for it, you know, we're going go to go win this. You're not gonna play for the tie. Right, okay. so I'm kind of getting loose. He said, you know, Charlie said, get ready to go, you know. So I'm getting my arm loose. So I always like to throw a lot. It's so just as I'm running on the field, Charlie kind of grabs me. He says, hey, you know, if there's a bad play, we can run out the clock, you know, just, you know, be careful with the ball. So I took about three more steps and Drew was right behind me, he goes, hey. And he goes, fuck that. He goes, go out there and sling it, you know. And it was like, uh, that's what we're gonna do. Of course, I run the huddle. You know, I started jumping around, and there was no TV timeout, so we were we were going right away. And we said, uh, so, all right, guys, let's go win this thing." And six plays later, I Manana kicks a forty-eight yarder. We have a shot of you at the end of the. I think you're in the
3: pedestal, and your hands are like this. And you're, have you seen? It might have been on the Sports Illustrated had it too. But yeah. we had a great shot. What were you thinking at that point? Was that back to, I, you know, thinking about I can't believe that this has actually happened.
4: Yeah, no question. And I was looking at my sisters. And I saw them sitting over there, and I kind of looked like, can you believe this? And this is just unbelievable. Where did you go next? What are some of the things that you've done since then? Well, of course, you went to Disney World and the Pro Bowl.
3: Who are some of the people that you've met since then?
4: Oh, God, just heroes of mine. I mean, John Elway and Steve Young and Muhammad Ali, um, Dan Marino. When you talk to all these people, you really realize... um, you know, you talk to Montana, you, you know Montana and Steve Young, and you know you just get a feel for him, and you know why. Now I know why this guy's done what he's done. You know why? I could see why. There's just a, you know, there's just there's a competitiveness, there's a spirit about him, you know, that's like when you when you're around people like that, you just kind of feel like, you know. I man, I'm sitting next to the man, you know. I mean, this is. Well, that's the way I feel now. Do you? See, I'm sitting next to the man. But <laughs> well, you know? I, got, I got a lot of years to get to catch up to those guys. But you know, you hear these stories about them, and um, you know, when you finally get to meet them, I and mean, you get to meet Muhammad Ali, I mean, Muhammad Ali was, you know, the greatest fighter ever. And he's, you know, he came up and he's showing a magic trick, and everybody is just in awe. You know, you just feel it. You. And he walks out of the room and everyone sit there and go, I mean, that was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And that's like when you, i sit there and go, now that's why, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's why people feel like, you, people make, Muhammad Ali makes people feel like that, mm-hmm. you know. Dan Marino makes people feel like mm-hmm. that. John Owen makes people mm-hmm. feel like that. And he made his teammates yeah. feel like that and his coaches, that everyone was believed in him. Mm-hmm. And everyone was like, hey, man, if I'm on your side, we're going to win. We're on the right side. When you look back at last season, at your last season, and all the great
3: things that happened. What do you think is the biggest obstacle that you had to overcome last year when you look back at it?
4: Um, I would say learning to adjust to the outside pressures of of playing quarterback. That the football the, the stuff that's always come pretty easy. You know, the athletic stuff, the throwing the ball, the learning the plays, the hanging with my team. But that's the easy stuff. But the pressures of... The interviews and the demands and the tickets and the hotel rooms and the, you know, the phone calls. And it's yeah. just, it can get, it can get very, um, you feel like the walls are caving in after a while. That, you know, you get boxed into a corner where, you know, you're so set in your routine that, you know, anything that breaks it, you just, mm-hmm. you just become overwhelmed. And I was really overwhelmed this last year because I felt like, um, I felt like there was no escape for me. I mean, there was no way to, to enjoy myself. For as great as the year was, the football was great, but off the field it was hard to get used to kind of my new life, mm-hmm. you know. Years ago, a lot of times the quarterback, you know, when you
3: had a Dan Fouts or a Bradshaw, they were the gunslingers, and they, you know, the whole team took their character from the, from the quarterback. Now, sometimes it seems like a quarterback is just like um, – the caretaker, you know, you send the guy out there. Don't lose the game for us. Mm-hmm. You don't have to win it. Don't lose it. The, the defense will, will, will win it. We'll win it with field
4: position.
2: Right?
3: Do you, ever, do you get a sense of that change at all?
4: Uh, you know, I think if you look at individual teams, I really think the I really think the team takes on the personality of the quarterback and the. the and the quarterback takes on the personality of the coach. And I think that's how it kind of trickles down. But so you
3: think you, you have Bill Belichick's personality?
4: I think I take parts from him, you know, that his, uh, you know, he doesn't get flustered too easy. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, you know, he kind of, he, he moves on, you know, if the week's yeah. over, hey, we're on to the next week. And that's yeah. kind of how I am. But I think, you know, you, 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 a question like that, I think there, if, if I'm thinking about our team, we had a great defense. You know, we had a team that could run the ball well. So what? You know, do you need? I'm there to fill in the gaps. I'm there to mm-hmm. I'm there to to make plays. Hey, when we're down ten in the snow, you got to go win it. You know, but if you're if you're up 21, you know, and you got to run the ball to win the game and hit a few third downs, you got to do that too. Mm-hmm. I think every team demands different something different. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think of the Baltimore Ravens, you know, and mm-hmm. that defense. I mean, you couldn't score on that defense if you, mm-hmm. you know, if, if in 50 quarters you know Mm -hmm. but then I think of the Rams and you think of Kurt Warren they ask Kurt to do different things I mean they ask Mm -hmm. different players to do different things I don't think the I don't think the relevance of the position has changed one bit Mm -hmm. I think it's it's I mean probably the most important position on the field because you've got the ball every snap and every time you touch it you know something's happening and and the words come from your mouth, the play calls comes from your mouth. The signals come, the game plan.
3: Are you afraid about peaking at this point? I mean, you think of Dan Marino and the story, you know, the second year, he breaks through 48 touchdown passes, breaks all his records, goes to the Super Bowl, and then he never returns. Yeah. Has that ever crossed your mind that, boy, you know, this is really, so I might never be back here again?
4: Uh, that's never, that's never crossed my mind. I don't think that ever will cross my mind. That, you know, I'm always, like I said, I'm always looking forward. It was great, I mean. I had, a, I had a our uh, equipment manager in college. I mean, he had been in Michigan for 25 years or so. He's got so many big 10 rings. I mean, he doesn't have enough fingers for all the rings he's got. And he says, you know what? He says, you know what, Tom? You know what my favorite ring is? And I said, which one's that? And he goes, the next one. Yeah. And I, that's what I think, the next one. That's my favorite. All right, it's, it's a good way to end it. That's
3: it. We got we to do that again. I hope we get you back here again. Yeah. But like you I said, in nah, about three years, he'll be throwing our guys off the field. It's like, don't fuck it away, you guys. I'm sick NFL
4: films. All right, that's it. Thanks, guys. That's it. Thank you.
2: I think it's been so cool to observe in this interview the roots of Brady's Hall of Fame career. But there's so many times where I hear Brady say something and I just want to yell, just you wait. Like when he laments how overwhelmed he felt after his first Super Bowl win. But his comment about his favorite Super Bowl ring being his next one? Well, he's maintained that as he's gone on to win six more. As we speak, Brady has just retired, although he threw his caveat zinger into the universe. Never say never. Next week, we'll hear from another man who's just walked away from the game with perhaps an open-ended future in Sean Payton. We'll travel back to 2007 for an interview with Peyton that took place just after his first season in New Orleans. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. I'm Andrea Kramer.
0: You go into your shower feeling tired. Shop now at a store near you.
1: Calling all men. When was the last time you had a really good cry? A recent survey found that women cry on average five times a month, while men cry on average only once a month. Studies have shown that crying can support your mental, your physical, and your emotional health. I'm Radhi Devlukia, and on my podcast, A Really Good Cry, we embrace the real, the messy, and the beautiful. Listen to A Really Good Cry on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.